Hey, I'm Zach, and one day I'm going to make movies, but right now I'm young, dumb, and not nearly as good-looking as my co-hosts. So with the help of... I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. I'm Steven. I'm going to learn what makes a movie great by watching all the classics I've skipped over. So pop the corn and turn your cell phone to silent, because it's time for a new episode of Zach on Film. Let's take a trip back to the dirty 30s and ride along with the Barrow Gang as we hold up banks, shoot up the police, and fall in love. As we talk Bonnie and Clyde this week on Zach on Film. <laughs> hey, Zach. Love hey, Stephen. Your first time seeing this movie? Correct. Is Rodrigo, first time for you seeing this movie? Uh, in its entirety, yes. Matthew, first time you've seen this movie? I, I have never seen this movie for one very important reason. Which is? I, I, I hate Warren Beatty with a passion bordering <laughs> on the fire of a thousand white hot suns why do you not like warren Warren Beatty. well it it really it comes down to a film that warren Beatty made called town and country oh i thought you're gonna say dick tracy i didn't (laughs) i didn't care for that either (laughs) i saw dick tracy i saw heaven can wait and i always found him to be kind of a slimy central presence right but if you've ever seen the movie town and country town and country is such such a smug Hollywood insider backslapping jackass of a movie. It, I mean, it is a just a horrifying, endless stream of really supporting every negative thing that you've ever heard about the Hollywood lifestyle and Warren Beatty as a person. And I had never, never bumped into Bonnie and Clyde at a point where I could have seen it. And when I could, I actually actively went, you know, Faye Dunaway is pretty and all, but. You know, screw Warren Beatty. Yeah, I'm not a big fan that's, of Warren Beatty. Great. I mean, he's done some interesting things, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's probably the same reason why a lot of people don't like Robert Redford, but I don't know why you wouldn't like Robert Redford. I mean, look sure. at him. Yeah, man. Um, I have a look, similar um, look a similar it. reaction to what's his name? Uh, Gene Wilder? Oh, no, I lost. Dane Cook. Oh. <laughs> that's that's the guy. I thought you were going to um, say, like, Dorf. Yeah. Dorf. No, I love Tim Conway. I love I love Richard, Richard, but not Richard Pryor. Gene Wilder, the other half of that particular comedy duo. Love Gene Wilder. Man, we should just you do know, a Gene Wilder. Yeah, there's no Gene Wilder movies on this list. It's too bad because like Silver Streak is one of my Ro- favorite movies. Blazing Saddles Throw Willy on Wonka on there. <laughs> we too many Willy, Wonka Willy Wonka is culturally significant because I freaking say so. Uh-huh. Okay. No. And if the AFI wants to come and sumo wrestle me, I, I will put on the, the Rey de Jalisco mask. And I will take them down in my underwear, and none of them will want to get in the ring with me because, <laughs> frankly, I'm wearing a luchador mask in my underwear and, and bellowing about Warren Beatty at the top of my lungs. But by God, it will be on the list. There you go. Last so, episode, Willy Wonka. I have spoken. So, uh, Zach. Yeah. What do we think this movie, Bonnie and Clyde, is about? Uh, this movie is about these two people named Bonnie and Clyde. Yes. And you're supposed to say about 150 minutes. <laughs> they kind of, they kind of like to rob banks and stuff, and uh, get a lot of money and get their kicks by driving down Route 66 and robbing banks. And then they don't do drive Route 66. Um, so this lovely lady named Bonnie meets this just out of j- jail guy named Clyde. Uh, I think he kind of wants to impress her a little bit. Goes and holds up a, a, a like a, mm-hmm. uh, a convenience kind of old timey convenience store kind of place, mm-hmm. and uh, then their fates are sealed, and they are running from the law forever and ever until one day they can't run no more. 
This is a uh, Rodrigo very sexualized movie. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty sexually charged. I mean, like the it it basically opens on a naked Faye Dunaway. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and well well done there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I I really there's a moment where she stands up and there's a singer sewing machine and I have never hated a small appliance more in my life. Well, and, then, and I don't want to sound like the old horn dog, but this this is a lovely woman wandering around naked. Yeah, and I mean it's really it's really great because she walks up to a mirror and you only see her face reflected in the mirror. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then of course she steps behind the curtain, you know, she turns around at just the right moment to where you don't see anything, but then she's behind the curtain facing the camera. And then she walks over to the window and of course it's cropped, you know, waist high. Yeah. But she walks over to the window and then you and the crop, cut down to you cut down to Warren Beatty trying to rob, uh, steal a car, and he looks up to this naked woman in a window, and the the cross pieces of the window are covering just the right spots, and it's like so well done. Yeah. From how do you? I mean, uh, on the comic book side, we've seen uh, uh, Amanda. Um, who is it? Amanda Connor? No, who does the? Uh, Connor. Yeah. Is it Power Girls? That Amanda Connor? Or am I thinking Amanda yes, Palmer? No. Okay, so Amanda Connor does the same thing. Amanda Palmer is Neil Gaiman's wife. That's, that's right. I always get those two confused. Um, but uh, she does that with with uh, several issues of uh, Power Girl, where Power, Power Girl is walking around naked, getting in the shower, and those kinds of things. And just you know, these things are placed in just strategic mm-hmm, places mm-hmm. to cover up where where things are at. And I like that they did that in here. Well, yeah, and it was necessary because I mean they're already pushing huge boundaries with this movie, right? With uh, sex already, so right. I mean they're not gonna not gonna get anything more than what they already did in this movie. And so then, it, I mean, then it, it does take some skill of, you I mean, you have to plan out shots with angles and uh, mm-hmm. set dressings and everything mm-hmm. to pull what you did off yeah. and, and to still make it uh, as sexual scene. as it was. Well, I mean, even the scene there's where... There's a scene where she's running down the stairs, putting on her dress, mm-hmm. and the lighting is perfect because it is literally a shot up her dress. But the lighting is such where you see her clearly lit with her dress starting to close, and as she walks to the, d- yeah, down into the, the darkness door. down mm-hmm. the stairs... She literally like steps over the camera, but the way it's framed is so gorgeous. She, she comes down the stairs and is more and more in the darkness before anything inappropriate would show up. It's well, really still well, there's the, even the scene where uh, Clyde Barrow is just like, come on, I'm going to go buy you a Coke. And they're standing outside the grocery store and he's basically telling her that he's oh. a criminal and he's stolen stuff. And she's like, I don't believe you. And there there's this very tight tension between the two of them where you can tell that there's a there's some some attraction between them mm-hmm. and they're glancing back and forth at one another and not looking directly at one another. And he's telling her how great of a, of a robber he is and um, equating that to essentially how good of a lover he is. And she's like, oh, you're not that good. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah. And he pulls out this big gun and he's holding it there and kind of dangling it um, very phallically. And yeah. then, of course, she reaches out and touches the shaft of the gun, which again is, oh my God, for 1967, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. for what they're insinuating there is, is really huge. And then of course, coming right on the scenes of the close up of her lips and that Coke bottle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, this is highly charged erotica by 1967. Still. It is. And, and then, then this is where, you know, the story kind of takes a different turn than what maybe people expect, because I think people always expect the story of Bonnie and Clyde as these tough gangsters that, you're just, you know, killing people and robbing banks and doing all these kind of things. Mm-hmm. And then the moment that she tries to instigate any kind of sexual activity and even throughout the entire movie, he's just not able to perform. And suddenly he is instantly reduced in stature from 
what he's been saying this entire time, at least in the eyes of the audience, because here's he's playing tough and then he can't perform. And she's frustrated by that. He seems to be okay with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then just like his sexual performance, all of their robberies are kind of the same way. Yes, they're successful in some places, but for the most part, a lot of their early robberies until she really starts to take charge are disasters where they're getting nothing because the bank is closed down or, you know, um, another one where they're trying to make a getaway and their driver getaway driver uh, has parked (laughs) the car somewhere else and can't get around in time. Um, it, It just kind of their career as as robbers seems to follow their relationship as um in, in the sexual sense because uh Clyde does say that he does love Bonnie but he's happy with things the way it is but Bonnie is constantly frustrated and I'm going to argue that Bonnie is the instigator in a lot of the in a lot of the actions that the Barrow gang gang takes she's the one that says oh let's go rob a bank oh let's go do this oh let's do this I'm frustrated doing this I'm tired of being here let's go do this and because he's not um I don't know, strong enough or whatever, um, just kind of does whatever she wants to do. And so from that standpoint, I think that the Bonnie character is a much stronger character, um, even though she may not get as much face time as uh, Warren Beatty's character. Um, I think that 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 Bonnie is the stronger character throughout. She's able to move the story forward. She's able to cause all the other members of the gang to do what she wants, but she's also very troubled with that. Would you agree with that assessment, Rodrigo, or or not? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, Bonnie is about half the time she is the instigator and the other half, she's the catalyst for Clyde to instigate something, right? Mm -hmm. So... Sometimes she says, let's go do this. And sometimes by basically making Clyde or putting uh, or casting a doubt on Clyde's abilities of any kind is kind of what moves the the plot along, at least up until the family gets involved. Right, right. It's really weird, too, because, again, up until the moment where she sees that he's a failure to perform, it's real funny because they go to that diner. And she's got that little curl in her hair. And even I was watching that. I was like, hey, I really don't like that curl on, on the side of her hair. Mm-hmm. And I know that's a popular thing. And she's a waitress and they're sitting there and this older waitress comes up and she's got the same style and Clyde doesn't like. And he's like, hey, change your hair. And she instantly does that, whatever, whatever he wants. But the minute that he can't perform, that's when she takes over and is in basically runs the show. Yeah. Um. I mean, I think there's certain times where she doesn't take control as much where she wants to, and um, she's kind of put down by Clyde, especially when it comes to uh, Clyde's brother and his uh, wife. Right, when right. When she kind of wants to get rid of them, but Clyde won't let them because they're family, and they have to stick with them now because they're in it just as deep as they are. Uh, and and maybe that is because that she couldn't have as much control as if they were there that she couldn't uh, exert as much force over <laughs> the other two as she could as Clyde but she certainly didn't get her way uh, as much when they were involved in the story and then i think afterwards um you certainly could say that she drove the the couple more yeah now originally i guess the movie was supposed oh, to be much more sexual than than um originally written out yeah. what were you going to say matthew more sexual than they could ever do. Yes. I think that in a lot of ways, this is a movie about 
the oral tradition and legends and how they never quite live up to their to their actual self because i mean the story of bonnie and clyde since you know the early 1930s i heard about bonnie and clyde through comics and mm-hmm, through, mm-hmm. You know, cartoons through things when i was a kid you would hear about bonnie and clyde the these you know great desperados in the in the days of the the great depression wandering the land and one if by land and two if by sea but when you get into this movie this movie is about undermining that that photo of bonnie as the cigar smoking gun mall and undermining clyde as this super manly thing and the two of them as criminal geniuses and to some degree the story does that as well it undermines you know clyde as a character it undermines their legend it kind of gives them feet of clay uh, gives everyone feet of clay to maybe the detriment of the historical perspective not mentioning anything at all except for denver pile but you get to a point where the movie feels very 70s to me right in that it it takes it takes that malaise it says okay here's this big 30s legend of big talk and big guns and beautiful women and now we're going to we're going to overlay it with this 70s filter how everybody's unhappy bonnie's running away from boredom clyde's running away from maybe having a little bit more interest in dw than he does in bonnie sure and you know when when it gets to the end of the film it's kind of that final nail uh in the metaphorical and literal coffin of the legend and i i i have to say i like it but i'm also a little bit brought down and depressed by the well and maybe and maybe you should be i mean it's interesting that you say this feels you know like a very 70-ish type film because that's the other thing that this movie has which for american audiences was i don't think they were ready for and that was the extreme amount of violence Mm. so you know if you go back zach into the uh silent film era days you know some guys running away in the great train robbery and he gets shot in the back and there's like a you know 10 minutes of him spinning around and grabbing his chest and (laughs) flopping around on the floor before he dies right Mm -hmm. and that's an over exaggeration but not by much um and then you know as as we progress through time. Anytime someone's getting shot, you know, somebody gets shot in the chest, they just grab their chest and, and fall over and they're dead. This is the first time that we see graphic, super graphic depictions of uh, violence mm-hmm. in this piece to the point where we're seeing heads getting blown off. I mean, the final, the final scene where Bonnie and Clyde are, are, are ambushed and killed um, is oh, just, yeah. you know, over the top. I mean, yes, <laughs> in real life, their car was riddled with bullets and they died. But here you're seeing it from all the different angles and you're seeing the bodies getting hit and blood spurting everywhere. And I mean, it's not even that that one time. I mean, even when uh, Gene Hackman and um, his wife, what is it, Estelle Parsons, uh, are, um, yeah. are are getting shot by the raid. Um, it's it's very yeah, violent. Yeah. I mean, even the first time the the, the banker oh, jumps yeah. on the side of the car and he gets shot in the face. Oh, and they don't they don't waste any oh, time getting into the violence God. in the movie. No. And that, that was shocking. The way that was framed, the way that was put together was like, good Lord. And so people look at Bonnie and Clyde as this first American movie that opens up the floodgates and say, hey, this kind of violence is OK. So all throughout the 70s, when we're looking at films like um, Taxi Driver and what are some of the other violent ones that we've uh, deer or not deer hunter um, apocalypse okay. now. These are the movies that came after that. Mm -hmm. So by then, it's almost acceptable to have this kind of violence. But this is the first one where people are like, oh, my God, it's it's the equivalent of going and seeing um, Reservoir Dogs for the first time. And you're not accustomed to that kind of violence or um, or or Pulp Fiction 
and not accustomed to seeing that kind of violence. Is that a, I mean, this is a weird movie because it almost. You've got the sex and violence together and they're so intertwined. It sends a really weird message about both of them um, to audiences, I think. You have some thoughts on that, Matthew? Yeah, but it's still very, it's still very haze code, you know? Oh, well, yeah, sure. It's still like at the end, crime doesn't pay. Everybody right. dies. And, sure. and it is like it, it follows that uh, crime drama formula really very closely because you get to live vicariously through these, you know, hard drinking, shooting, dangerous, sexy people. And then at the end, to keep the the watchdogs uh, quiet, they kill them, and they're like, "See, <laughs> but you're gonna end up dead." Yeah, I mean, really, it's this is like very, yeah, the violence, like the stuff that they depict, is very over the top. But in a lot of ways, this is, I mean, obviously, it's based on a true story, and the characters did end up dead, but it actually has themes that we've seen in like crime comics and crime novels mm-hmm. probably for you know 30 years before this what i find interesting is that i find interesting is that when they're finally able to have sex that's when the story ends because the very next thing yeah. oh we're all happy and we found our place in life and we're going to do the right mm-hmm. thing and we're going to do what we need to do and then bang they're all dead but I mean, that's a trope you see too. Sex equals death, and you know, no, nowhere as much as you know, say the adventures of Jason Voorhees. But I feel like Rodrigo's point is valid in that this movie is a modern take on the gangster pictures of the '30s, but it still follows a lot of those gangster picture rules to mm-hmm. a T. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and that's that, the point where. She's she's like, oh, you're not such a bad man. And he's like, watch this. Mm-hmm. And he goes and does yeah. something ridiculous to impress a girl. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that's like you you could have seen that in a picture from 1932 with like, uh, what's his name? Jimmy Cagney. Well, and see, that's kind of the problem. Gangsters. Well, that's kind of the problem because Warner Brothers really didn't want to make this movie because they considered this a throwback to their old movie ways. I mean, you know, you talk about um, – uh, Cagney and you talk about the gangster films, that's what they produced. Those are the kind of crime things that they used to produce. And here they'd come so far and to say, yeah, we're going to take a step back and do gangster movies again, uh, seemed to be something against the head studio's wishes, but they went ahead and proceeded anyway. They didn't give it a lot of publicity and ended up becoming the second highest, uh, grossing movie for Warner brothers at that time. Um, but it's interesting that understandably so. Yeah. It's interesting that the, that people will reject going back to the well for things that work. And I mean, I always as a creative well, artist, you should be trying to evolve and trying to do something better and something different. Um, but sometimes you have to also do with what, what works. That's also a great example of how going back, you know, people look at Bonnie and Clyde and said, this movie set the tone for the seventies. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, um, what it was doing, it was it was trying to harken back. You know, when we look at stuff like Star Wars, and it's like people look at Star Wars and they take stuff from Star Wars, and that kind of became the modern movie, like into like well into the nineties. Um, what Lucas was doing in a lot of ways was harkening back to old serials and to old Japanese movies. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's it's interesting 
to 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 think that the movies that set the tone are themselves trying to recapture something of the past. And I I think that's a, that's an important kind of distinction to make is if you look at only the surface of this it could conceivably be a gangster picture with i don't know mickey rooney and betty ross <laughs> who's betty ross i don't know betty, betty davis ross. betty ross married the hulk but if you actually pay attention to what's going on and it's it's weirdly subversive in this that's where you really see the parts that you know kind of depressed me and reminded me of you know the the ford and carter eras of america where everything had that weird dark underbelly to it but as you go through the film a lot of it is played absolutely straightforward a lot of it is kind of like yeah here's this this gangster moment and then afterwards we get this little shot of Clyde looking incredibly nervous, like he can't believe he's still right, alive. Right, mm-hmm. right, yeah. Or, mm-hmm. or Bonnie being like, "Oh my god, I can't believe that I thought this guy was cool." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And having that momentary doubt. You know? Zach, what did you pick up from from the story elements that you would want to incorporate or use in the future? Uh, really, like from the story, the biggest thing was the ending, where um, CW's dad tells him essentially something's going to go down, mm-hmm. and so that's letting the audience know something big's about ready to happen, and they're probably not going to get out of it this time because I mean we're getting close to the, end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the whole time when Bonnie and Clyde are kind of having this na- nice afternoon in the town, and they're going to stop at this to help their old farmer man fix his tire, is like you know. Something is because my heart was just beating so fast because like I didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but something bad was going to happen. Right, and so you can to give the audience more information. The characters can greatly build a sense of apprehension for what's about to happen next, and it can heighten uh, the emotions for the next scene. Excellent. And let's give us some shout outs to our associate producers for Zach on Film this week. They are Richard Pulfer, Royce McWee the Third, Nelly Perry. Russell Gatt, Robert Graham Gemmel, Tony Bishop, Cody Dixon, Brian Gantley, Tanjing Min, Alan Bruce, Joseph Calarudo, Jason Berry, Ivan Peterson, Daniel Jusen, and Michelle Nielsen. Thank you for supporting Major Spoilers and letting us do so many shows every week, and it's all because of you. So what did you think about, like, the editing, the story pacing... The um, kind of flip-flopping almost between comedy and mm-hmm. intense action. What did you think of all of that? Um, well, flipping between comedy and tragedy and like death and action and everything is an interesting concept because generally that's how life plays out mm-hmm. is these either subtle sways of huge emotions or very drastic changes of emotion really quick, uh, depending on how you react to certain things. Um, So I I feel like if you can do that right, it certainly can feel more lifelike. And this is um, a story that takes place over a long period of time. Right. Um, So you would expect to see jumps of emotion. And they Mm -hmm. can't, I mean, they can't show you every scene and every bank robbery they did in this film. Uh, So, I, I mean, jumping between kind of styles or emotions that didn't really bother me. I did. <laughs> the only thing that kind of bothered me, which I kind of loved was 
like big emotional gunfight mm-hmm. and then banjo picking yeah. <laughs> escape music, which I think is probably the greatest uh, car chase music. It's like the has ever that, been Foggy Mountain Breakdown or whatever it is. Yeah, Foggy, Foggy Mountain, Mountain Breakdown. Break, yeah. yeah. And like that Latin should be scrubs. placed over every car chase yeah. scene my in friend, any movie. My friend Charlie learned to play the banjo just so he could play Foggy Mountain Breakdown. It's a good goal in life. It is a good goal well, in life. But, but is... Is this movie where were there banjo cover chase scenes before this movie? Probably, because I, I think because I, I was looking at it and I was like, oh, haha, banjo music, and then I was like, okay, wait, they're in like northern Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas, right? The characters are from that area. Mm-hmm. All the story takes place in that area. It makes sense for there to be banjo music playing mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, especially blue, bluegrass music, especially. Yeah, yeah. As like, was, you know, and there's lots of car chases and this is like, is Bonnie and Clyde the one that set that as the universal chase music? That's a, yes, you know, this was because, the first time. Were, this is the first time Foggy Mountain Breakdown had been used as a chase song. And it did set that precedent for future um, chase scenes to use that same kind of oldie timey banjoy or flat out using the song as their chase music. Yeah. Another great example of, um, they like something that the filmmaker says, well, this is, this is an upbeat song to have for this chase. Um, and it makes sense like within the context of what we're looking at. And then people afterward a thousand times just kind of either removing that or referencing it comedically mm-hmm. and it becoming completely separated from the source material. Mm-hmm. So what's really interesting, though, is originally now Arthur Penn was the director of this movie. Originally, they wanted Francois Truffaut to do the film, but he was too busy with Fahrenheit 451. Then they wanted uh, Jean-Luc Godard or Godard uh, to do it next, but he didn't trust Hollywood. So he refused to do it. So eventually it came down to Arthur Penn. Now what's interesting about um, Godard and Truffaut is that they're part of the French new wave movement of film, which heavily, heavily, heavily influenced a lot of the directors that, that you're influenced by, or maybe we're all influenced by, I mean, um, Coppola, Lucas Spielberg, um, um, De Niro and um, yeah. uh, And others all point to the French new wave as these films that they were seeing when they were kids that came out in the 1950s and really early sixties that really changed the way of thinking because they were art films that were not your traditional John Ford, Western wide expanse stuff. And they're often, they often use jump cuts, choppy editing sequences, basically everything that we see in this film Mm -hmm. to tell their story. And if you've ever seen the movie breathless and it's worth checking out breathless, I don't think, it's not on this list. Um, Breathless not is an interesting. No, 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 no. This is uh, oh. uh, Truffaut's. Uh, I think it's Truffaut, or maybe it's Godard. Original. Yeah, um, yeah, I believe it is true. And it is so trippy in how it's telling the story about a uh, uh, a shyster and this girl that he's fallen in love with. Not a lawyer. I shouldn't say shyster. Um, this um, uh, con artist. And this girl that he falls in love with and their exploits, a little bit Bonnie and Clyde-ish mm-hmm. uh, in his portrayal. But it's so interesting that Penn then, knowing who these directors are, really embraces that style of filmmaking and kind of brings this French New Wave style to America and incorporates it in American films. 
Um, you may not like Breathless because it does kind of extend out and have some really weird moments that don't seem like they would normally belong in a film. Okay. Um, but uh, it might be worth checking out. And it came out, I think I want to say 51. I, I want to say is when Breathless came out. 1960 um, is what it's Oh, what is it, 1960? Okay. So yeah. there's another one that's very close to following that French New Wave movement, um, but not all the way. And that's a movie called Amelie. Have you ever seen Amelie? It's no, a French film. No. Um, really, really good. Kind of has a, a lot of the same similar tones and editing style and, and kind of craziness. But it's interesting that here are the French influencing American films, which then influence, you know, these directors who then influence a whole new generation of people like J.J. Abrams and and others to um, uh, to create to create films. So if you're not familiar with French New Wave, you might want to check out yeah, check yeah, that out totally. and learn a little bit more about about that, because the editing um, is where this style really shines, because it can be so choppy and you can get rid of it. I mean, you see this in. Um, Easy Rider as well uh, uh, in that style, just kind of very chaotic, mm -hmm. uh, very loose. Um, yeah. And then, uh, of course, the final death scene where they're getting blown away, shot in slow motion. Some of it shot fast, uh, but just these really cut, yeah, really super fast, fast edits. Cuts. Um, and I forget. I, I remember seeing a documentary years ago where the editor was talking about how she edited. She and this other editor were editing this this scene. Mm -hmm. And um, it just took a long time to try to just get it right. And they were like slicing frame oh, after sure. frame off until they got it l just exactly the way it worked out. And they said it was a, it was a long time just yeah. editing that final. What is it? A minute and a half of the movie. Yeah. I mean, uh, once eight seconds, once they once Clyde realizes what's happening, it's just rapid fire cuts. Yeah. Yeah. All and the way uh, up. But also but also notice that it is it's not only just rapid cuts, but it's also. We're shooting this from multiple angles. We've already seen, you know, like Clyde get hit in the head. Mm. Now let's see that scene from another angle of him getting hit in the head again. And now let's see it from another angle of him getting hit in the head. And that's something that editing kind of allows you to do. It kind of allows you to manipulate time in that fashion to where you don't always have to tell a, a sequence literally mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a straight line. Um, but you can back up and say, well, let's take a look at it from this angle. Let's take a look at it from this angle. Um, who did, who did the movie triple X? Who was the director behind that? Um, with Vin Diesel. Yes. With Vin Diesel. And the guy that did fast and furious. Is he the same one that does the, does I that? Know. I feel like it is. I could be Rob, off. Rob Cohen. Okay. So, uh, Rob Cohen is influenced by movies like Bonnie and Clyde and also from, um, like extreme, uh, skateboard video, um, oh, yeah. stuff. So when he approached triple X, He's looking at these movies and saying, well, wait a minute, we can tell this same stunt from 10 different angles and it's OK to show that same shot again and again and again. So if you see Triple X, it's kind of I'm not saying it's like Bonnie and Clyde, but you see the influence there <laughs> yeah. where Vin Diesel is on the motorcycle and he's getting ready to jump over the um, barbed wire fence and the things are exploding all around him. You see that sequence from 10 different angles, all starting over from the moment that the explosion occurs. So the explosion occurs, the jump occurs, you back back up, the explosion occurs, the jump occurs from a different angle. And it keeps doing that uh, five or six times in that sequence because that's what you can do with editing. And that's what you can do with this with this fluid movement of of time and editing. It's, it's real fascinating. And it's not something that we think about because normally when we think about editing a jump, there's the takeoff, the midair, mm -hmm. and then the landing. And that's all that you show. And you right. show it in that linear fashion. But yeah. as we see with Bonnie and Clyde, and especially in that final sequence, 
you can do whatever you want. Sure. And, uh, I mean, we, we've seen the concept of looping back in time or messing with time in other movies, but it's generally in larger sequences. I mean, like when Memento is backwards, it's like mm-hmm. forward and backwards, mm-hmm. but uh, it's giant sequences. And I think as you start uh, um, dropping the time frame that you're going to loop back on, right. you you have to be very conscious of it. And it has to be for certain things because, uh, I mean, manipulating time... Uh, can confuse your audience and if you start doing it rapid fire of uh you're looping back on the same shot over and over and over again uh, if it's not done well then you could confuse your audience and they might think oh this just happened six separate times and not that we're not seeing different angles of the same thing yeah but i don't i don't think that happened here no i mean it's i don't know it's a different editing style that i think maybe you should probably watch a few times to really kind of see what they're doing. Um, Cause it's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, it's not like your traditional editing style at all. And I think that's something to, to watch out for. Um, what else did you pick up from this, from a technical side that you think that you might want to incorporate? What, what about the uh, rear screen projection? You're going to use that? Uh, no. Why not? Well, it does not, it's not very good. Why not? Well, I mean, the technology they had then <laughs> is not, not well, very know, good. I mean, I've seen some great rear projection, and it still get used today. Um, yeah, I forget. I was just watching a show or a movie just the other day that was like a relatively recent movie. Ab- uh, Tom Cruise's Oblivion, um, when they're up in their yeah. giant space yeah, thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like huge, huge be- uh, rear screen yeah, projection. and that works really well. Yeah. But, I mean, anytime you're looking at car driving. Car scenes are it, just, it doesn't it doesn't work and no. we've seen that again and again from uh it happened one night to citizen kane to bonnie and clyde to every movie Seinfeld. that's done projection uh and a card scene yeah. it's it looks always does not look good doesn't look good i mean it, sometimes green screen doesn't look well that great no but it's no. generally you can get a better look than rear screen. well and it's because you're trying to accommodate the needs of the film um to create this believable world without mm-hmm. having to go on location and do it again and again and again, where you can yeah. just create a film loop and say, okay, let's back it up. Let's do this again, project it and let's go. You know, if, and I don't know in the sixties, who knows what, I don't know what the exposure latitude is, but it would be also very hard to get a proper exposure on the people in the car and yeah. the outside without filling that car with so much light that their faces would melt like Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> so, um, you know, maybe green screen helps that out a lot. Oh yeah. I mean, ah, spoilers. Oh, sorry. <laughs> don't don't look, Rodrigo. Don't look. Whatever you do, don't look. Um, the crow said, "Don't look." <laughs> yeah, spoiler. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Mine's a spoiler. <laughs> um. But yeah, I just it's I think it's the it's the timing, right? I mean, you're reacting to what's on the screen behind you and if the car starts to turn and in the in the in the rear screen projection and then you're starting to turn, mm-hmm. there is that, you know, half second of where it's crazy delayed and unless you're actually driving the car, yeah. you're missing out on a lot yeah. of that stuff. Okay. So it does look silly though. Technically, uh technically um, for me the most striking thing about the movie mm-hmm. came during the wide shot. Bonnie had run away. Oh, they through the field, that extreme wide mm-hmm. shot of the cornfield, mm-hmm. and you see the light changing as the clouds go across the sun. Mm-hmm. And I swear to you, I'm sitting there and I'm going, "This is brilliant. This is beautiful. How do they do it?" And then I realized, "Oh yeah, it's 1967. There were clouds going across the yeah, sun." Yeah, yeah. 
but it's so gorgeous and it gives that whole scene just this weird alien perspective that you don't have anywhere else in the movie and then they do that whole sequence with the family reunion and you have the clouds passing over and i'm just like this is beautiful yeah this let's is like a completely talk about that that was a weird film. scene yeah um i thought that was gonna be a dream until she referenced it two seconds after that scene was over because it looked like they shot it on a different camera and then blew it up. Oh, really? I mean, it was completely grainy. It was so strange. They shot it through a screen on purpose to give it a weird sort of alien feel. Yeah, dreamlike feel. Yeah. 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 That's what it felt like. Interestingly, all the family members are just people that, bystanders that showed up that day to see what was going on. And uh, Bonnie's mother was actually just a person who was standing around there like, how would you like to play the mother in this movie? And she's like, okay. Wow. Bonnie, you're going to die. I can't stand how you're acting with your life. (laughs) You're going to bring her back. (laughs) Don't you live near me, Mr. Clyde Barrow, because I don't want to watch you die horribly in a hail of gunfire (laughs) like we're all going to in 20 minutes. And over gonna, and over again from different angles. And I'm going to catch a stray bullet. Four different cameras at four different speeds. Into my eyeball. <laughs> what about that getting shot in the eye? Oh, Ugh. yeah. Ugh. Oh, oh, no. No, the scene the scene where Lex Luthor and Roseanne's mom get killed, or in one case killed, I guess, that is just horrifying, terrifying sequence. And again, it's those moments where you're like, oh, it's 1967. I wonder if they're really just shooting at these poor people. <laughs> <laughs> well, with your love of Warren beating, you probably were the, hoping the it was. Yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, we're just going to shoot some folk and we're going to put it on film. And that'll, that'll be our big movie. Why are, why are Bonnie and Clyde? Uh, why do we romanticize these two? To the point where their cars on like display at the Smithsonian or something. Oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, it's actually in a, in, a, in a creepy roadside attraction somewhere in Arizona. Oh, is that where it is now? I thought at one point it was at the Smithsonian. I don't, yeah. I don't know that. Uh, it's not so much that. I mean, we we have inherited that romanticism from the people that did romanticize them, I think. I mean, they were a national phenomenon when they were alive. Mm-hmm. And, I, can tell you, I can tell you why people no, romanticized them. It, it, in the 30s, during the Depression, there were a lot of guys who were like uh, – Outlaws. You had your Dillinger, and you had the the Ma Barker and Pretty Boy Floyd, and all of those characters that would circle around, you know. And you'd hear about, yeah, Doc Barker did this, she, and everybody in the '30s also talked like that for some reason. But if you look at Bonnie and Clyde, Bonnie and Clyde had the three letters, the S E X, a going for them mm-hmm. because they're they're not just a a a you know a desperado. It's a desperado couple. It's a pretty young couple in their 20s. They were both like 24 when they were shot. I mean, these are very, very young people. And they they have that that literal romantic vibe to them. I mean, they are a couple and they run a gang. And it's like, this is what the new young kid thing is going to do. And in the 50s, then they'll all drive off a cliff with Natalie Wood. But I, I think Bonnie and Clyde had that expectation at a time when the world was extremely limited and, you know, the, the population was 80% unemployed. There was no money, no jobs, no, you know, no cash, no whatever. That's a 10 years after joke and I'm not going to do it. Well, it, it was a time where they ignored the rules, where they ignored all the mores. They went out, 
they became criminals because that's you know that was that was how you fought the system. But it was like a Robin Hood couple. It was right. like Julie Romeo and Juliet Robin Hood is what it was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That vigilante aspect uh, certainly leads well a little that, bit to it. Yeah, and I think they try to kind of reiterate that by saying, "Well, you know." The, one of the first robberies, yeah. he's like, is that your money, old man, yeah. or is that the banks? Well, that's my money. Well, you keep your money. That- We're only robbing from the banks. You mm-hmm. keep your money. We're robbing the bank. Yep. And that moment where Gene Hackman literally just scales up and goes right over the top of the, the uh, teller's cage. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's just amazing. And I'm, I, I looked at that and I was like, wow, I wonder if anybody ever, ever really did that. But God, that's brilliant to look at. So here's, here's what uh, the Wikipedia has on their deaths. Uh, approximately 9.15 on May 23rd, the posse concealed in the bushes, and this is the posse headed by um, uh, the Texas Ranger. Uncle Jesse. Uncle Jesse. Um, heard Barrow's stolen Ford V8 approaching at high speed. The posse's official report had Barrow stopping to speak with uh, Melvin's uh, father, C.W.'s father in the film, who had been planted there with his truck that morning to distract Barrow and force him into the lane closer to the posse. The lawman, the lawman opened fire, killing Barrow and Parker while shooting a combined total of 130 rounds. Oakley fired first. Prentice Oakley. That's uh, the deputy uh, killing Barrow uh, in the initial headshot. But Hinton reported hearing Parker scream as she realized Barrow was dead before the, the shooting at her fully began. The officers emptied all their arms in the car. Any one of the many wounded wounds suffered by Bonnie and Clyde would have been fatal. Any one of the <laughs> many wounds would have been fatal. Yeah. And this is 1934. The, each of the six officers you know, had a shotgun. Yeah, each of the six officers had a shotgun and an automatic rifle and pistols. Good gracious. But you look at some of the pictures of the car. They did not have the Tommy guns that we saw. In the no, 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 no. But you look at some of the shots of the car, and it's like bullets that would have been dead on. This shows you how how thick the metal was on these cars. Didn't even penetrate. Just caused <laughs> big dents in the car. Wow, crazy. Well, yeah, there's two things going on. Cars built like tanks. Yeah. And yeah. Gun, gun technology. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like somebody gets shot in the eye in this, mm-hmm. and she and nothing happens to her. Yeah, yeah, she yeah. might lose the eye, but yeah. getting shot in the face doesn't kill her. <laughs> and something that th- this is terrible, and and I'm saying this right now: do not do this. Do not do this. When I was younger, I read a book called Hollywood Babylon, which led me to a yeah, number yeah. of books that had things. And one of the things that they had was Clyde Barrow at the scene in the car. Mm-hmm. He clearly took a bullet in the eye. Do oh, yeah. No, that, that's what they repeat. do not go looking for that image. People, you don't want to see late. it. Zach already did it. But yeah, I know Zach's a jerk and, and lots of people <laughs> are. And, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to finger wave at anybody who does, but be aware. It is extremely graphic and gruesome. If you do go looking for it, I'm sure it's easy to find in the internet, but it's something where, yeah, you, and even if you look at it on the film, that last scene mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Faye Dunaway hanging out of the car like yep. a bag of potatoes. Yep. I mean, ugh, ugh, disturbing, just disturbing. And the, the bit where he turns and Clyde is starting to run for the car. And as the bullets rain down, you see, and it's a brilliant effect. You see a piece of his skull fly off. <laughs> yeah. I want, I, I'm not sure how they did it. I'm sure it was just some guy. Oh, going, it's, hey, all, it's all squibs. It's all squibs. Yeah. I, I just find it. But I just. Um, oh, I, it's. Yeah. So did you like the movie, Rodrigo? Ugh. Yeah, uh, I, it's it's probably not something that I'll specifically seek out very often, but I did enjoy it. It had, you know, movies from this era are very episodic. 
So it's like mm-hmm. the moment that the movie started, I kind of knew where it was going to end, but you don't know what's going to happen in the middle, right? The, mm-hmm. the thing about these movies is that the whole point is the journey. It's kind of like the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Um, there's lots of stuff that happened in the middle, and sometimes you think to yourself, is that actually the same movie? Like, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> and to once you get over... Our, our, a lot of our modern sensibilities about movies where like every last thing has to be directly related to the plot or character development or something like that. Um, these movies weren't that tight about that and didn't want to be. So, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a cute little movie about gangsters up until everyone dies. And that's actually, you know, pretty, uh, basically what I was hoping for as soon as the movie started. So Zach, what are you taking away from this? Uh, that I mean, I I I, I still think that the tension building thing was really big for me, mm-hmm. uh, letting the audience know more than the characters do. Um, that you can use interesting shot angles. I mean, they th- threw some POV shots in it here, which were interesting uh, to look at when they're robbing the banks, and you kind of go into uh, Clyde's perspective. Uh, it was an it was just an interesting angle. Um, I wish that we still had car runners so I could jump on the side of someone's car. <laughs> Thought that yeah. a lot during this movie. Now today you have to buy them as a uh, went much slower then. as an yeah. add-on. Yeah, those 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 high-speed car chases were forty-five miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, that's how fast those cars go. <laughs> Anything yeah. else? No, those are the two big things, and I I have to go back and watch more of the editing to. Um, compare that to yeah, and the, take a look, take a look at the French stuff. New Wave. Take a look yeah. at the French New Wave and just read up on it, and so you're familiar with it. Because I'm sure at some point someone will say, "So Zach, what do you think of French New Wave?" I'd be like, uh, "I have no idea." Well, you don't want to be that guy. Ah, oh, sassy ball. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that as as the guy who plays a lifelong endless game of Hey, it's that guy. This is the most distracting movie for playing Hey, it's that guy that we've ever had on Zach on film because everybody is somebody else. Gene Hackman, uh, the, the actress who played Roseanne's mom, the main lawbreaker character is Denver Pyle that we know from Andy Griffith's show and uh, the Dukes of Hazard. Even, you know, minor characters like uh, CW's dad is Dub Taylor. Yeah. Dub Taylor is one of those characters who's in everything. Apple, Apple Dumpling the Gang. Second that, yeah, the second that the character shows up played by Gene Wilder, <laughs> I'm just like, Oh my God, Gene Wilder's amazing. And I started thinking about everything else that Gene Wilder has been in. But in my minor research, I did discover that the, the Undertaker character getting, um, getting kidnapped by Bonnie and Clyde actually did happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. And supposedly that character was brought in to identify the bodies and apparently was the, one of the Undertakers who worked on the bodies once they were deceased. Interesting. Once wow. they had been shot. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that is at least not entirely factual, but factually derived. Excellent. Cool. Thank you, Zach. Uh, thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Rodrigo. Yeah, and that's going to do it uh, all for this week on Zach on Film. Make sure you head over to com to find this podcast posting page and give your thoughts on Bob Bonnie Clyde or anything we discussed in this episode. While you are there, click on Amazon.com where you can do all of your shopping needs. Uh, buy Bonnie and Clyde on Blu-ray or a new Blu-ray player or TV. Nothing's going to cost you uh, any extra, but a little bit will come back to us to keep us doing shows week after week Where's after that again? week for you. Where's that's, that again? That's at MajorSpoilers.com. And you click on what? 
the Amazon.com link. Amazon.com. Yeah. Excellent. Yes. Um, so that's it for this week. Next week, we will be talking 2001, A Space Odyssey. Get your LSD uh, ready, Zach. I know a you guy. Ready to get, you ready to get high? I'm, uh, yeah. Okay. I'm going to be tripping like yep. a monkey. All right. Summer camp is a magic place where kids discover who they are because they have the freedom to explore on their own. Why Camp at Horse Thief Reservoir is a sleepaway camp in the heart of Idaho's wilderness. Each summer, campers make friends, build new skills, and learn to love the outdoors through activities like canoeing, archery, zip lining, rock climbing, campfires, and more. Registration for Why Camp at Horse Thief Reservoir is open. Financial assistance is available. Learn more at whycampidaho.org.